Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Battle Walks where we are walking the great battlefields of Europe. If you haven't listened to our recent episodes, please go back and do that because we've had some absolute crackers. And I know someone who will agree with that. It's my wonderful co-host, Pete Smith. Pete, we're back. Yep, and I'm crackers. Uh, yes, we are. <laughs> we're definitely back. <laughs> Mate, um, we've done something interesting here. This is not just a history podcast. It's also a space and time podcast. We have broken the space-time continuum because on the 20th of April, 2022, we said we will see you next week for the second part of our Suvla episode. <laughs> and it's now a year later and we're only just getting back to it. So either something's shifted in space and time or yep. we just got distracted and moved on with other things. Um, but the point yep. is we are now back doing the second part of our Suvla episode. <laughs> I actually had to listen to it to find out what I'd been talking about. Oh, it was, you know, it's it's well, it's the it's the hectic life of battlefield guides, isn't it? That we there's always yep. something new to discover. Um, but thank you for hanging in there, dear listeners, <laughs> for a year. If you were, <laughs> I'm just imagining our poor listeners, Pete, sitting there with a cup of tea, going, "Oh, I'm really keen to hear the second part of our Suvler episode." So, look, if you haven't, if you don't know what we're talking about, go back a year to the 20th of April, 2022, and hear the first part of our Suvler episode in Gallipoli. Uh, but now, I'm actually really looking forward to this, Pete, because this is one of my favourite areas of Gallipoli. Not particularly yeah, well, well visited, um, so I'm looking nope. forward to um, getting stuck into it. Yeah, me too. Uh, I enjoyed actually listening to us uh, in the part one. I thought I thought we were very good. Sounds like we know what we're talking about occasionally. It did. It did. Yeah. Um, last time, what we actually did was the really it was a Suvla and north of Anzac tour, and we did the northern sector of Anzac at Gallipoli. Um, and now we're going to do Suvla Bay proper, the Suvla sector. So there are, most people don't even realise, but there are three sectors, three areas of operations at Gallipoli. Uh, there's Anzac, famous for Australians and New Zealanders. The Hellez sector, which gets a little bit overlooked by us Anzacs. 
Uh, and then, of course, Suvla from the landings in August. So we're not going to recount the entire history of the Gallipoli campaign, um, but just note that the Suvla landings were made as part of the August offensive and do go back and listen to that previous episode because we explain in some detail what was going on. But the, the, the very quick overview is that as part of the huge August offensives, the Anzacs were attacking north of, north of the Anzac sector and the British launched a new landing at Suvla Bay right up on the northern part of the peninsula uh, on the 6th of August, the same time the Aussies and New Zealanders and, and Brits were attacking in the, the mad tangle of gullies north of Anzac. So, I mean, the, the interesting thing to say here as well is that by the 7th of August, so a day after the landing, there were 20,000 British troops ashore at Suvla facing 1,500 Turks who had very little artillery and no machine guns whatsoever. And yet the British, you know, it's, it's very confused, the historic explanation as to what happened, but basically the British troops did not move forward quick enough and the Turks were able to reinforce the hills around Suvla and like Anzac, like Helles, it became a siege. So, I mean, Pete, have you ever seen a decent explanation as to why the British just didn't move forward and capture that high ground? I think it's confusion. Confusion reigned. It, just just the conf- You can feel it when you read battalion kind of histories. And also there's a bit of a blame thing going on. You know, battalions are trying to explain why they didn't move forward, what went wrong, and they're blaming the battalion to the left or to the right. And that battalion is blaming somebody else. It, it's just a mess. It's just a complete lack of planning, lack of maps, lack of preparation, and lack of drive in some cases. I mean, you hear you know, there are stories of the men kind of almost not very happy to get off the boats. They've landed. They've got these new beetles. They should be kind of easy to get ashore. They're not getting ashore. They're they're they're, they're grounding on the on the reefs, and, and the guys won't get out because they're not under particularly heavy fire. So. Uh, yeah, it's a mess from right from the start. It's a mess, and it will continue to be a mess as the as the cane, uh, campaign uh, unfo- unfolds. Well, doing my research for this episode, Pete, I was just—I mean, flabbergasted is the word. It was there were yeah. there were so Suvla Bay is a big flat plain surrounded by a ridge of hills, so it yeah. looks down like an amphitheater. Now, the one thing I should say in defence of the British is it's deceptively the ground is deceptive. Suvla Bay. If you are looking at it from Anzac, for example, you can see the whole thing. It just looks flat as a pancake and it looks like a parade ground. When you get there, which we're going to do on this walk, it's absolutely fascinating. And the first time I went there, Pete, I was astounded by how many little gullies and washaways and hidden little valleys. And it's some tough country. If I said to you, to anyone, start at the beach and walk to the hills, they would be exhausted and wrecked by the time they got there. It is a a confusing country to cross. It's also the descriptions of it are confusing because quite often they just talk about the, the the salt pans or the salt plains, and you just get this vision of of very very flat, unbelievably flat, and they just got to cross this flat ground and then assault the hills. And as you said, that's not it at all. But but even the information that you get, you know, must have. And you can imagine the guys being told, you know, when we get off the boats, guys, it's very it's going to be flat. You've got these salt plains to to cross. Cross these the salt pans and 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 attack the ridges. There's very few techs here. It's going to be a, and it just develops into a complete mess of people not knowing where people are, disappearing to gullies, just horrendous. The other frustrating thing was that some of the really important hills actually were captured by the British early on in the landings, yep. soon after landing. Yep. Um, but because of the confusion, because everyone was disorganised, they made a not not insensible decision to yep. consolidate, to, to get everyone together and get everyone sorted out. But that meant abandoning hills 
that the Turks then occupied and that they would then lose thousands of men trying to retake. So, I mean, it's all the stories of Gallipoli are frustrating, but this one yeah. in particular. I just wanted to read a quote here before we get started. This was a German perspective. This is um, Kanengeser, the uh, German um, commander who was in charge of a, a lot of the Turks. And he wrote an excellent book, which is translated into English in the 20s. So certainly look that up. But he's got some excellent accounts from the, the Turkish high command point of view. This is what he saw on the morning of the 7th of August. Suvla Bay lay full of ships. We counted 10 transports, six warships and seven hospital ships. On land, we saw a confused mass of troops like a disturbed ant heap. And across the blinding white surface of the dried salt sea, we saw a battery marching in a southerly direction. I saw English troops on the Lalababa and on the flat in certain places entrenching. Nowhere was there fighting in progress. So I think that's a fantastic description of how confused it was. Why was an artillery battery going south? That's completely the wrong direction. Lalababa is a hill that they occupied early on, one of the few hills. Um, I love love his terms, a confused mass of troops like a disturbed ant heap. That sums it up pretty well. He might be being slightly harsh on the British, but it certainly sums up that feeling from the Turks that, that they had an opportunity to reinforce. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think it's a good description. Well, it's a frustrating walk, this one. We're going to, um, I think, if, you, if you're listening to this, I think you're going to be shaking your head as much as Pete and I are when we visit a number of these sites. And here, what went on there, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 there's no glory at Suvla, but it's, it's a place that should be visited. Not enough people go there. Most people don't go there when they go to Gallipoli. It's hard to visit. The roads are bad. It's a long way north. So you really have to seek it out. But I would say to everyone listening, when you go and walk the ground for real, absolutely include Suvla. Um, I, I, as a historian and a, a tour operator, I don't let people go to Gallipoli and not go to Suvla when they're when I'm putting itineraries yeah. together and people are wanting to save time or focus more on Anzac. I say, no, no, you've got to go to Suvla as well. You, you can't understand the full story of Gallipoli until you've visited Suvla. That's what we're going to do today. It's one of my favourite places, Matt, I have to say. I, I enjoy uh, exploring that open vista because we're so used, if you're used to kind of exploring or you've been to Anzac Cove and you get that the tightness of it and how close everything is, uh, and suddenly it's not like that. It, it, it's very open. You can see the ridges in the distance. And so it's a very different perspective from the one that we normally, especially from an Australian or New Zealand perspective, of those ridges that we're trying to get to the top of. This is not quite that. And you certainly don't have to worry about crowds when you're up there, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. That's absolutely absolutely sure. Yeah, dogs maybe. Dogs, dogs probably yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the wild dogs, and um, you see a lot of uh, shepherds up there or, or goat herders up there, yeah. and uh, they're always yeah. appreciative. A little bit of company hits some lonely territory up in the yeah. northern part of the peninsula. But it's a great area, it's, and this is going to be a great walk. So, so let's kick off. We finished at Hill sixty, right in the north of Anzac, the, the really the delineation point between Anzac and Suvla, and we're going to head north from there. I mean, Hill sixty, one of our favourite spots to visit at Gallipoli and the story really begins and ends at Hill 60 and we're going to head off from there um, and just a little bit north of, uh, of Hill 60 Cemetery is an intersection with a few cemetery signs pointing in various directions and this is the start of Suvla, the start of the, the bumpy roads. If it's been wet, you often won't be able to get through to these cemeteries, which is quite unusual for Commonwealth War mm. cemeteries, Pete. It is. That Commonwealth yeah. cemeteries are traditionally built in access, accessible areas um, this is certainly not the case here. Many of these cemeteries are inaccessible, and these sites are inaccessible if it's been uh, if it's been raining. So, um, the suspension on your car will get a good workout during the Suvla tour. That's all part of the yeah. adventure. So, it what is. we're going to do? Go on, go on, Pete. 
No, I was just going to say, you never know nowadays, do you? There's so many changes taking place uh, at the moment that I was just thinking, I wonder if the roads are still like that. I haven't been for a couple of years, so uh, you never know, do you? We'll have to have a word with uh, Craig there and see if he knows uh, whether the roads are still difficult or whether they've been improved. Yeah, it's a great point. I haven't been to Gallipoli for a few years. 2019 was the last time I was there. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this and you've been recently to Suvla, um, let us know. Contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Tell us what it's like. I assume the roads are still terrible. They have been since the campaign. me too. Um, yeah, I kind of hope um, they. I kind of hope they are really because part of the enjoyment <laughs> to me is getting there. It's it's an adventure to get there. I agree. I agree entirely. So we're going to turn left at the big intersection of uh, signs, and we're going to head. Uh, there's a there's a hill in the distance that we're going to drive towards. We go past a. There's a well, an old fashioned well that was actually used during the campaign. It is worth stopping at as well. But we're heading for the hill, and what we're actually heading for is a cemetery uh, called Lala Baba Cemetery. Um, so the, the hill just next to the cemetery was the hill called Lala Baba that, that was referred to in that previous quote. Um, and it was really the first high ground captured, uh, captured on the, you know, as soon, pretty much as soon as the, the troops came ashore. Yeah. Um, and the cemetery is a good, interesting spot to get a good perspective, um, on the landing beaches and the early phases of the, um, of the Suvla campaign. And Pete, you wanted to talk specifically about some of the units that came ashore here. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, Lalababa, to a lot of the men that fought there, was known as Yorkshire Hill, um, which gives you a clue, uh, really, of who's going to be uh, uh, taking Lalababa. Um, it's the 11th uh, Northern Division, which in the main was a Kitchener division. So these are the first of the Kitchener men, in fact, to go into action. Um, and I just was going to run through the 32nd Brigade, which was actually involved in the taking of Lalibaba, and uh, just uh, to get the names of the of, of the units involved. So 9th Battalion West Yorkshire Regiment, 6th Battalion Yorkshire Regiment, 8th Battalion West Riding Regiment, 6th Battalion York and Lancaster Regiment, and the Pioneer Battalion was a 6th uh, Battalion of the East Yorkshire Regiment. So you get the uh, the gist of the Yorkshire Hill. It is predominantly uh, Yorkshire uh, regiments and battalions. And they are all uh, Kitchener men. So all Kitchener's pointing fingers. So all, all volunteers. These are This is part of the, the volunteer army. There's a neat uh, dovetail here, Pete, with something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We did the first day on the Somme in the area around Sare and the Sheffield Memorial Park. Um, are these the same? Are these the same men that would fight in that area on the first of July? Pete? Um, that's a very good question, and the simpler answer is, in some cases, I would say yes, they are, but I'm not quite sure where where they are at that period. It's not specifically good... the ones that we followed around Sare, um, but no, the, it's not. No, it's not. But this because... is Kitchener's new army, the Yorkshire, you know, the Yorkshire yeah, battalions. Uh, they they absolutely yeah, it... would have fought the first of July. So it's a question where. Most definitely the 11th Division um, certainly uh, did fight during the Somme. I'm not sure whether they were engaged on the 1st of July. Uh, Somebody will know straight away. And in fact, if I reach across and have a look at the book, which I'm not going to do, I can quickly check myself. But uh, yeah, they were certainly on the Somme, definitely. Whether they were uh, engaged on the 1st of July, not sure. The interesting thing about Lalababa, Pete, that I always like as well, is it wasn't just the scene of the landing uh, at Suvla, it came into um, into the history before that. It's one of the things I love about the Gallipoli story. There's because the lines didn't really move very much during the whole campaign. Every patch of ground has dozens of stories about it, and yeah. Lullababa is no exception. Um, because really early in the campaign, in fact, the first week of the campaign on the second of May, 
there was a Turkish observation post up on Lalababa, which was looking down because of the big curve of Suva Bay. It was actually looking effectively into the back of Anzac Cove. Um, and they were observing and directing artillery fire down there. And so in one of the most underrated actions, I think, of the campaign, um, the New Zealanders launched a raid on Lalababa on the 2nd of May. Now, this is ludicrous. It's so far in Turkish territory. This is, you know, how many months? This is three months before the Suva landings. This is so audacious. They went up in boats. They landed on the shore where the same the same beaches where the British would come ashore in August. And they crept up and they attacked and overcame the post at Lalababa. Just, just extraordinary. I, I want to read the account here. Then I want to get your opinion, Pete. So this is so they came ashore in boats. And this is the quote. They crept in three groups up the side of Lalababa. In a trench immediately below the crest, they surprised 21 Turks asleep. These, on being disturbed, fired a few shots. Several were killed and 15 captured. The New Zealanders searched the hill. They found a machine gun emplacement, blew up several huts, destroyed the telephone wire, and embarked before midday without interference from the enemy. I mean, that's just... <laughs> that's that's <laughs> predating the commandos. That's, you know, we talked in our Guadalcanal yeah. episode about the long patrol, the marine raiders. That's an extraordinary feat of arms, Pete. Well, it's an extraordinary feat just for the navigational ability. You know, we... we, we looking at the landings that, that take place with the uh, the 11th uh, Northern Division, where they have no idea w- what's what. They get confused. They're lost. I mean, these guys, uh, on a, a little raid, manage to get straight to the right place, do exactly what they're supposed to, to be doing, and leave. Uh, just extraordinary, you have to say. <laughs> you must admire them as a former commander yourself, mate. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic kind of operation, a minor operation, um, but does exactly what it's supposed to do. Extraordinary. A shout out to the Kiwis. I tell you what, at Gallipoli and on the Western Front, wherever there was a tough job, you could rely on the Kiwis, couldn't you? I mean, look back to yeah. our episode on Lequesnoy or Lequinoa, as we know it's yeah. pronounced. I mean, just the, the balls on the Kiwis, mate. They they never yeah. fail to yeah. impress me. <laughs> No, no, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, an extraordinary feat of arms. Heading back to Lullababa and specifically the cemetery, you made the good point, Pete, that um, the landing in this area was completely unopposed, but it didn't mean the fighting in isolated pockets oh. was. And there was actually some quite no. stiff fighting to capture the hill uh, where the cemetery now is. Yeah, the 6th uh, Yorkshire Regiment and the 9th West Yorkshire Regiment had uh, terrible casualties, so I've just uh, scribbled down the notes for these. So um, six officers and 25 uh, other ranks uh, in the uh, 9th West Yorks. Now, what's fascinating about that is the high casualty rate for the officers. Six officers and 25 other ranks. Uh, And then for the 6th Yorkshire's, 11 officers and 56 other ranks. So this is actually junior officers leading from the front. Now we still haven't got the hang of let's let's camouflage the officers so they do, so they look like the men so they're not such obvious targets. Uh, at this period they're still not doing that. So officers stood out and we know the marksmanship of uh, the Turkish snipers was excellent. So they are literally picking off the officers who are leading from the front and hence we get this very quickly get the uh, the confusion. Um, because if you've lost your officers and they're the only people that have been given the full brief, if if they have, on where they're supposed to be going, then the men start milling around. And uh, we can see in, in a lot of cases, senior NCOs, warrant officers uh, taking charge of of these groups, groups of men who have lost their officers. And the first action for these men as well, we should recall. These men have probably trained Absolutely. for six months and then now here they are. So when, when your yep. lieutenant, who you followed through thick and thin for six months of training gets a bullet in the head in the opening minutes that's going to throw you out of uh, out of um 
out of your routine pretty quickly. And there's a there's a really good example actually in the cemetery. So the cemetery was created after the war. Let's do the let's do the stats uh, on the cemetery. Um, most of the cemeteries at Suvla were created after the war. There were obviously battlefield burials, but most of them have been consolidated into these really these mini concentration cemeteries. Compared to what we see on the Western Front, these cemeteries are relatively small. But it's the same principle of bringing in bodies from outlying graves and smaller cemeteries. So uh, there's 216 burials in Lalababa Cemetery. 53 are unidentified. Um, yeah. So, again, a small cemetery, but a concentration cemetery made after the war. And like all the Gallipoli cemeteries, curious decision, but they don't mark the unknown graves. So often you will go into a cemetery and there'll only be a, a handful of headstones, but the cemetery is full of men. It's only the it's only the men with a known burial, a known identity who are marked with a headstone. And I, I, in some ways, I find that disappointing, Pete. I, I, I think that if you walked yep. in, a lot of people just don't realise. They think there's only six men buried in the cemetery and they don't realise they're standing yep. on unmarked graves. I probably, if it was up to me, would have preferred to have seen every grave marked like they do on the Western Front. But that was their decision. Um, I, think yeah. they were, I, think, well, I think it illustrated the disaster that was Gallipoli if you had a cemetery where you'd go, we have 554 burials, of which six are known and the rest are completely unknown. There would be an awful lot of unknown headstones. Yeah. They also, I think it's a nature of, uh, well, it's a nature of having to abandon the sites for most of these cemeteries as well. It meant that quite often the markers got lost. So, uh, for example, here... Uh, the commanding officer of the 6th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment was actually killed, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Edward Chapman. Um, he actually will lose his life. Now, he is buried in the cemetery, but yet he, we don't know where. So he's got a headstone, but it's he's buried somewhere within the cemetery. They're not even quite sure where he is within the... Well, not even quite. They have no idea where he is within the uh, in the cemetery. I'm just going to read a little bit more about him here because uh, this is part of the letter that was sent by the battalion chaplain uh, to his father. He died as he would have wished to die, a gallant soldier leading his men himself at the very front of the regiment on the summit of Lalababa. Despite the hail of bullets and the shower of shrapnel which had now got the range, the Yorkshires pushed forward to the Turkish trenches on the crest of the hill. There it was that the colonel's gift of leadership made themselves felt. Come on, the Yorkshires, he cried, and at their head, with fixed bayonets, the lads he trained so well swept forward with irresistible force, and the hill was ours. Um, he was unfortunately killed, as was his um, his cousin, Captain Wilfred uh, Chapman, six Yorkshires, was also killed on the, on the 7th of August, and they're both buried within the cemetery. The thing I think is most interesting about that, Pete, and harks back to um, your description of the officers being killed, leading their men from the front, was that um, Lieutenant Colonel Chapman is not the most senior officer buried <laughs> in that cemetery, which is quite no. extraordinary, because lying not far away um, is Brigadier General Paul Kenner, VC, is buried there, who had won the VC yeah. uh, in the Sudan in 1898. Uh, I have I won't read the, the full citation, but he, he rescued a number of wounded chaps and got got them out of heavy fire and was awarded the VC for that. Um, and uh, he was then um, killed by a sniper at uh, at Suvla. Yeah. So later in the a couple of weeks after the landing, but again, you know, you, you were looking there at a, a, a brigadier general um, hit by yeah. a sniper leading from the front. So I mean, again, it goes against the idea of the chateau general, safe and warm while the men are doing all the fighting. But it also illustrates that point very well. How many officers went down in the in the fighting yeah. at Suvla? Yep. Uh, we also have, I'm just going to read a, a couple more of the people that I know are in here. I, I mean, the, 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 there are so many 
everybody's important, but there are so many well-known people in a lot of these small cemeteries. And again, it's a loss to, well, to the world of the, of the potential of, of these people. So another one, this, in this case, it's a sportsman, Captain Robert uh, Randerson, 6th Battalion of the Yorkshire Regiment again. And um, he uh, was an outstanding sportsman. He played for Batley in Northern Union uh, uh, rugby football. Uh, he was also a, a teacher, and he'd been commissioned just before the uh, the, uh, the war. And then, very sadly, we have the young lads as well. Uh, number one, two, five, two, two, Private Thomas Parkinson, Ninth West Yorks, um, and he was killed on the seventh of August in nineteen fifteen, and he was aged just sixteen. There's also a couple of seventeen-year-olds in here, Pete, and several eighteen and nineteen-year-olds. So the, the yeah, there's two yeah. or three seventeen-year-olds. So a sixteen-year-old, several seventeen-year-olds, yeah. couple of eighteen and nineteen-year-olds, all new army men as well. Yeah, yeah um, all I mean, volunteers. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, tragic. And we should remember that that Kitchener's new army. We think about the destruction on the first of July, nineteen sixteen. But for some of the units, Gallipoli was their first action, and. Yeah. What an action it was. They got absolutely smashed at Suvla. So, um, yeah, just we should spare, spare a thought for those poor buggers. Yeah. yeah um, the other thing I wanted to say is if you go to the back of the cemetery and stand up on the wall, you could actually look out. This is probably the best spot to get a view of the landing beaches uh, and, and where the British came ashore. Um, so it's a really good perspective. And they had all the usual problems of landing. Some of the beaches were quite quite an easy run in, but um, the ones particularly in front of this cemetery, there were a lot of sort of rocky shoals out, and that meant the boats grounded quite early. So it was a good thing that the um, the landing was unopposed, effectively unopposed, because uh, otherwise it could have been quite a disaster. And I have another quote here. Uh, this is uh, describing the, um, the the landing in this in this sector. The run in took less than ten minutes, but how different from Anzac. The landing was a complete surprise. There was no opposition and not a single casualty. A few rockets were fired and one or two rifle shots rang out in the darkness, but that was all. Our motor lighter grounded rather far out, making it necessary for the men to wade in about three feet of water. They made a poor showing, no dash and a certain amount of talking. Indeed, a handful, who obviously had had the wind up, looked as if they were afraid to land. Petty Officer Main sang out and told them to get a move on. They went ashore after that. And I should have mentioned this is by an Australian who uh, was attached to the British uh, and uh, had um, had obviously landed on the first day at Anzac. Um, but um, yeah, that 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 sums up pretty much what we were talking about, Pete. That there was a certain reluctance to get ashore. Just a, yeah. again, um, leadership. It probably comes down to leadership from the from the highest levels that uh, that there wasn't this drive, this 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 imperative to keep moving inland quickly and secure that high ground. And that was a terrible blunder. Um, I'm going to read another uh, first-hand account uh, out here. Now, this one is one in my own collection, so this is one that's never been uh, published. Oh, excellent. And it's from uh, it's from a private Jack Gullthorpe of the Lancashire Fusiliers, uh, again part of the uh, 11th Division, his 9th Battalion. Um, sadly, he will lose his life a few days after he wrote this account and sent it home to his, his wife. So, dear wife and children... I write these few lines hoping to find you all in good health as it leaves me at present. Also to let you know that I am where the fighting is going on. We left the last place last Friday and came here. Of course, he cannot say where, where exactly where he is. There were no troops here before and we uh, had to make a new landing. All went well until the boat got no further and then the Turks started firing at us and we had to wade ashore. 
We were up to the waist in water, and what with them firing at us and us not being able to see them, it was a warm time, but I came through all right, and then on Saturday we shifted them a bit further away, but we lost a lot of men, and we have been fighting ever since till yesterday, the first time I have had chance to write. I was thinking of home on Saturday, the first morning here, and thinking about it being the holidays. I thought to myself that I was having a warm one, but never mind, we are still living and here to tell the tale, and that is something to be thankful for. I thank the Lord on Saturday that I came through all right. I don't think it will be as bad again, at least I hope not. Remember me to all at home. Kiss the children for me and give them my love. I have not time to write more, so I will conclude with the fondest of love to you and the children from your ever-loving husband, Jack. And at the end is put, P.S. Write back to the same address. Remember me to your Alberton, his wife. God be with you all. We will meet again. Jack with love. Uh, and sadly, he, he was killed on the 21st of August. Just oh, a, no. A, a oh, later. no. <laughs> we hadn't yeah. we hadn't discussed this beforehand. I hadn't heard I it know. as you were reading that. I was going, please tell me you made it. <laughs> oh, no. no. Oh, yeah. Those ones, yeah. oh, as, a, as a dad, I mean... Wow, yeah, terrible! No. Yeah, uh, I, and I, I actually have his medals and his death plaque as well, and I look after them and revere them, um, uh, so I kind of keep his memory alive uh, here in this house. Well, that's that's a wonderful yeah. account, Pete. Thank you for that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I'm not quite sure what to say after that. Wow. <laughs> but we must we must push on as the as the Brits did themselves. We must yeah. keep moving forward and. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to head uh, back to the intersection, and we're going to now drive to another cemetery, uh, which is a little bit further inland, which is uh, Green Hill uh, Cemetery. And uh, even though we've just driven there pretty smoothly, the advance for the British was horrific, and that one sums it up that the Brits were trying to move forward, and the Turks quite artfully had concealed snipers. It was really the only way they could stop them. They, these probably technically weren't snipers; they were just infantrymen who were good with a rifle. They just nominated, yep. okay, you know. You're going forward because we know you can shoot well and hold them up as best you can. Um, but it all the whole story plays into each other here because they were very good at picking the officers and hitting the officers. And um, so it was a, a quite a treacherous um, progression forward and the Brits would go out, send little patrols out to try and find the snipers. And I've got a quote here. I won't read the whole thing, but um, um, the, the, the end of it is parties would go out voluntarily in search of these fiends, but all to no good for generally they would return with a majority of them missing victims to the snipers so just imagine what that means in an advance you're just trying to move forward and officers are getting yeah. picked off men are getting hit sometimes from the side sometimes from behind if you bypass one of these positions inadvertently there was no cohesive line of advance so small parties were going forward just a very tough way to fight and it's going to lead us to green hill cemetery and these are two hills side by side rather confusingly named but in the end we settled on green hill for the, the one that was green and Chocolate Hill for the one that was covered in brown scrub. Um, and effectively, these two hills mark pretty much as far as the British got in this this part of the line during the whole campaign. And then after the war, as they did in many places in, a, in a, an important position, uh, they built a cemetery. They brought in graves from isolated posts. Um, unlike Lullababa we were just at, this is a big one, 2,971 yeah. graves. And of those, once again, 2,472 uh, unidentified. So only what five hundred out of the nearly three thousand have yeah. an identity. So again, a very this cemetery, Pete, always strikes me as um, it reminds me the most of Western Front cemeteries, um, even though yeah. it's at Gallipoli. 
um, because mm-hmm. it has a it has a, a cross of sacrifice. Um, it uh, it has you know it, it's laid out in a way um, that reflects the Western Front cemeteries. And there's a couple yeah. of very interesting um, graves in here. I think also as well that that's uh, that enormous number of unidentified we kind of here on the Western Front associate with with Passchendaele, where so many are lost on the battlefield, and, it, and it's no different here. Most of these graves are going to be uh, this is a concentration cemetery, so created after the war when they literally went out and found the human remains, either buried or not, and, and not in a lot of cases, um, and brought them in. And of course, if these bodies have been out in the open uh, since 1915, and this is late 1918 1919 and and so chances of identifying a lot of them well almost nil well there's a couple of very interesting um graves in the cemetery that 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 i did want to focus on probably one of the most fascinating is there's a lieutenant william niven in the cemetery and you may say that's a familiar surname yes this was david niven the actor's father who uh, was reported missing on the 21st of August. You'll notice again as an aside that uh, this date, the 21st of August, keeps coming up. The um, um, mm. Brigadier General Kenner was killed on the 21st of August. Your uh, your friend that you just gave his sad yep. account of, Pete, he was killed on the 21st of August. David Niven's yep. father was killed on the 21st of August. There were some very big attacks on that date, uh, which we'll come to later on. Um, but, but I think that's an interesting one. David Niven grew up without a father. His father had been killed at uh, at Gallipoli, but uh, here is uh, here is um, what David Niven wrote about his father in his famous autobiography, *The Moon's a Balloon*. So David Niven wrote, "My sister and I were swapping cigarette cards on an old tree trunk in the paddock when a red-eyed maid came and told us our mother wanted to see us and that we were not to stay too long. After a rather incoherent interview with my mother, who displayed a telegram and tried to explain what missing meant, we returned to the swapping of cigarette cards." and resumed our perusal of endless trains lumbering along a distant embankment loaded with guns and cheering young men. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
A couple of interesting things to take from that. It was a fairly aristocratic environment he grew up in. (laughs) I mean, it's a a great account of of how children are, I suppose, are... um, What's the word I'm looking for? They can cope with all sorts of information because it just doesn't mean a great deal. And I suspect with one of these families where father was probably not there an awful lot anyway, that it wouldn't have the impact that perhaps it would have nowadays on a family where the father is always always, uh, always present. Now, that's maybe been a bit bit unkind. Uh, just a final thing to say, if you haven't read The Moons and Balloon, uh, I, it's an excellent book, one of my favourite uh, autobiographies. Um, it's it's uh, well worth read. reading. Yeah, I haven't read it for a number yeah. of years, but it's a great read. Uh, one of the other things I thought was interesting is there is a, uh, I saw a letter in, in while doing this research that Mrs. Niven had received uh, from uh, from someone at the war office which advised that uh, it reported that Lieutenant Niven had been seen advancing and had been shot in the head. Uh, but then rather optimistically added, this does not exclude the possibility of your husband having been taken prisoner by the Turks. <laughs> Technically, yeah. that is true. Technically, that yeah, is true. Is. However, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it seems unlikely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. as, uh, as reflected in that account, um, he, he was missing and, um, and uh, is, uh, is buried here in the cemetery. I'm just looking, does he have yeah. a grave? No, he's on a special memorial. So they know that he yeah. was buried here. Buried but they don't in, know which, yeah. uh, which grave he's in. Yeah. So I thought that was really yeah. interesting. That was a fascinating account. Um, one of the other ones, again, tugs at the heartstrings. Uh, there's a yeah. shot at dawn here, Pete. The, one of the cemeteries, uh, well, sorry, one of the graves we always like to visit are the men shot yeah. at dawn, men executed for cowardice or desertion or, you know, one of the most barbaric chapters of the of the whole First World War is the, the execution yeah. of men in your own ranks. But this one's particularly moving. So this is Private Harry Salter um, was executed not long, a week before the evacuation as well. So yeah. terrible. So this is an account of, of his last moments. This youth, barely 19 years of age, was shot by 12 of his comrades for taking French leave from his regiment on two occasions and attaching himself to the Anzacs. So deserting, basically. Not by any stretch of imagination could my comrades or I catalogue it as desertion, as twas impossible to desert from the peninsula, even had he so desired. Yeah. I was one of the firing party. He was marched from a dugout about 80 yards away to a kind of disused quarry where the final scene was enacted. A clergyman preceded the doomed youth and his escort reading prayers for the dying, the mockery of it all. The doomed youth was tied up to a stake, his grave already dug. His last request was, don't blindfold me. What followed, I'll leave to the reader's imagination. In other words, I'll pull the pall of oblivion over the ghastly scene if I can ever forget it. I only wish that the distinguished person who signed the death warrant without taking into consideration extenuating circumstances would leave his comfortable island residence and visit the men under his command who are going through it all. Well, we'd have a bit more faith in our leaders and confidence in ourselves. Wow, that is quite a statement. And the man who signed the death warrant, of course, he's referring to there is General Hamilton, who was over on yeah. uh, over on Imbros and not on the peninsula. So, wow, that's yeah. don't blindfold me were his last words. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's, I think it's 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 so um, extraordinary when you think yes he couldn't go anywhere so it isn't like he deserted deserted no um, and normally desertion means that you leave your identity discs your rifle all of that your your military paraphernalia behind um, and that's seen as, as as true desertion but I bet in this case he didn't um, because he's not going anywhere other than a little bit along the coast so it's just very 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 sad um a sad a sad little story i tell you what things must have been bad at um suvla if he decided that the place he would prefer to be was anzac 
So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, right, so, those, so those Australians, he knew that he'd uh, <laughs> he'd be hidden. He'd be hidden amongst them. Yeah. yeah there's one so, other. Uh, there's one yeah. other story here in a grave that I always like to visit when I'm in this cemetery because Peter, I know you and I share a fascination and a, a great interest in the pilgrims that came after the war to visit yeah. to visit graves. So family members coming to visit graves, or most most movingly, I think ex comrades, people who served here coming back yeah. to the battlefields. You know, I'm, yeah, I, I, I'd love to be transported back in time and, and be there to to see the veterans coming back, which they did in yeah. great numbers, particularly in the 60s and 70s. They seemed to come back in, in large numbers then. Um, but uh, there is a grave here uh, that I like to visit of Gunner uh, Charles Crisp uh, because he was visited by his good mate, uh, who was Sergeant George Dale, in 1971. And this is what George wrote about visiting Gallipoli. The most impressive cemeteries were Lancashire Landing at Helles, Lone Pine at Anzac, and Green Hill at Suvla. In the latter, I paused over a name, for there lies quiet, decent Charlie, moved from where we laid him below Chocolate Hill. Charlie never knew our brave new world of strikes and demos. He missed the slump, another world war, and several cold ones. Charlie never watched telly, nor saw an honest Bob become five new pence. All that trouble and strife he missed. Ah, but life is sweet. Rest in peace, old pal. It's just a fantastic course, is that? It's just, ex- <laughs> just I mean, fantastic. It was recorded. No, I just think it's wonderful. He yeah. also uh, he also gives a good indication of what life was like in Britain in the seventies: <laughs> strikes <Yeah>. and <laughs> strikes and slumps and <laughs> demonstrations, <laughs> austerity gone wild. But um, I love that quote. I'd like so to, I'd like to say I can't remember, but sadly I can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really love that quote. Well, yeah, what a, yeah what a lovely, it is. It's a lovely sentiment. What a lovely yeah. sentiment. So um, yeah, Green Hill. It's a great spot to visit. I always like going there and. Um, yeah, it, it does feel very similar to the cemeteries not far from where you are, Pete, on the Western Front. It's, it's yep. a good spot. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, so um, we're going to leave now. We're going to head uh, again to another cemetery. The, the the key points on the battlefields tend to be marked by cemeteries uh, at Suvla. Uh, and this one's Hill 10 Cemetery. Now, this da- is down a very rough track and often it's inaccessible. Um, but if the weather is clear, as it is for us today, Pete, we're going to head down there. Yep. <laughs> I should say, as an aside, the first time I, I did this tour, when, when I was putting the book together, I did it with Kanan Chelik, the, the wonderful Gallipoli guide. And we did it in my little crappy hire car that I'd picked up in Chidukali. It was a bomb. <laughs> and we took it was not a four-wheel drive by any stretch of the imagination, but we took it places that only a four-wheel drive would normally get to. And uh, it was even in worse condition when I dropped it back at the depot. But my goodness, we got to some places. But I remember bumping down the track towards Hill Ten as one of the greatest adventures of our of our tour of Gallipoli. Um, but this is a this is a really fascinating cemetery. Uh, another concentration cemetery made after the war. Six hundred and ninety nine burials. Only one hundred and fifty unidentified here, which is um, a small proportion. So a lot of known graves yeah. here. I think we're in an area where there were hospitals and and um, various things. So a bit a bit more of a um, a bit more uh, chance of identifying. Uh, the burials. Um, so it's it's an interesting um, cemetery. Interestingly, Pete Graves from the Newfoundland Regiment uh, here in the cemetery, yeah. which is yeah. fascinating. We talked about them. We've talked about them a few times in our Somme episodes because famously they attacked at the Newfoundland Memorial Park, um, or the site that is now the Newfoundland Memorial Park on the Somme, yeah. one of the most visited spots on the Western Front. Um, and everyone's got a bit of a soft spot for the Newfoundland Regiment. And this was actually their first action, though. It, it wasn't the 1st of July, as most people think. It was here at Suvla Bay. Interesting, an interesting yeah. unit, Pete. 
Yeah, very interesting. Uh, you have just battalion strength, so um, it's it's uh, a regiment, but it's in fact it's just one battalion. Uh, Newfoundland, not a, a very big population, but will serve throughout the whole of the war. Um, so yeah, uh, now of course Newfoundland part of uh, of Canada, and in fact almost from my window I can see one of the caribous uh, that commemorate their their places of action, and there's one being placed on the peninsula. I don't know where it is, Matt. Do you know where it is? I, I have no idea. They've just recently put up a memorial right. to the It might be here. Uh, For all I know, regiment. it might be here. Yeah, it, yeah. I'm, uh, I guess I'm sure one of our listeners uh, it would, and one of our listeners will know. But uh, yeah, inaugurated maybe a couple of years ago. I think it was inaugurated during COVID. Actually, that's probably why we. Don't, I don't know exactly where it is because we won't have been yeah, since recent. then. So um, yeah, so uh, it's uh, now commemorating their service here. Yeah, that's excellent to see. I've I got love those memorials. Yeah, me too. Uh, of course, uh, this is if he has a grave, which we hope he he, he has, because he's actually uh, uh, commemorated as uh, one of the missing um, on the Helly's Memorial. Um, but uh, the accounts are the last letter home by uh, Jack Gulthorpe. Um, he will lose his life uh, attacking Hill 10. It was taken by the 9th Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers, of which he's a part of. Um, and uh, I like to think that perhaps he's buried in this uh, in this cemetery. Highly likely, you'd think, of all, of all the places he could be buried. Yeah. He might be one of those 150 unknowns. But um, I'm just going to read... Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, sorry, Matt. No, I'm just going to read uh, an, another account. This is uh, a battalion that's passing over this ground. So this is the 7th Battalion of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Um, the pals arrived at Hill 10 to find it has been taken by another battalion. So the final advance on Chocolate Hill began with several hundred soldiers from other Irish regiments and a considerable number of troops from the 11th. Uh, They headed off across the Salt Lake bed in an easterly direction, then ran over a couple of empty watercourses, through a number of dry ploughed fields before crawling through the hedgerows. The troops now entered a network of empty but well-constructed trenches at the base of Chocolate Hill. So this is actually attack on Chocolate Hill, but it's just interesting because it gives you an indication of what the landscape was like which some men assumed had been built under German supervision. The enemy strategically withdrew to the very top of the hill. Now it was time for a wild and heart-stopping charge to the summit using both bayonet and bullet. Even those who were not in the vanguard of the assault could see that an officer was signalling the men from for the off with a green cloth tied to a stick. Then with a deafening roar and a concerted rush, the Dubliners stormed Chocolate Hill. To many of the pals, it looked like and sounded like a gigantic version of a forward rush on the rugby field at Dublin's Lansdowne Road. By the time the pals had reached the top, all the Turkish defenders had either been bayoneted or shot or had fled into the distance. Dead bodies lay in the brushwood on the hilltop that looked like a volcanic landscape in places, thick with smoke and pockmarked with craters of shells sent over earlier by British naval gunners. It was a bleak and lifeless scene, but the Dublin pals had helped the Irish division to take its first objective, and there was an intense satisfaction for many of the men in that fact. Now, it's read slightly out of sequence for for what we're doing, but it started at uh, Hill 10. And I just thought it was an excellent example of the landscape. It really describes the landscape very well. Yeah, that's a great account, Pete. Thanks for that. It's, um, uh, you know, it sums up all those things that we talk about at Suvla with dry water courses, um, ploughed fields, hedgerows. I was forgetting the hedgerows. They're they're not even really planted hedges. They're just these scrubby little barricades. We saw a couple of them at Hill 60 on the last walk. Um, They're... Terrible. We we still have to get through them today, and uh, you know you want to wear long sleeves when you do because they scratch you to bits. Yeah, but yeah, um, it's yeah. rugged country. It's deceptively rugged. 
Um, another thing I like to note about this cemetery is there's actually three Australians buried here, which is highly unusual for the Suvla sector because Australians didn't really serve in this sector. Um, but they, they, they give a really interesting cross-section of Australian service outside the main actions that were going on at Anzac. Yeah. So one of them is Chief Petty Officer Edward Perkins, who served with the Royal Australian Naval Bridging Train. Now, there's a number of photos in the Australian War Memorial collection of the Naval Bridging Train doing their work. So they were engineers that were sent up to Suvla to help build piers and construct things for the for the base there. Um, and so they were sent up the 9th of August. They began working on piers up at Suvla, and they were the only Australian unit to stay permanently in the Suvla section, uh, sector. Um, and they lost 60 men during the course of the Suvla, uh, the Suvla campaign, um, but only four of those men were killed in action. The, the others were wounded or evacuated sick, um, and um, Chief Petty Officer Perkins is the only member buried on the, on the peninsula. So that's the only Royal Naval bridging train grave you'll find on the peninsula. He was killed by shellfire. Uh, on the 6th of September. Um, another interesting grave is Lance Corporal Herbert Peters, and he served with the 8th Light Horse, the 8th Australian Light Horse. Now, if we know our Gallipoli history, we know it was the 8th and the 10th Light Horse who were involved in the disastrous charge at the Neck during the August offensive. So there's not a lot of people who <laughs> who said, I'm from the 8th Light Horse and I'm still serving after August. Uh, but he was. He'd survived the charge. He was in the charge at the Neck and he survived um, and then was sent... Uh, as a scout uh, up to join the British and then was killed by shellfire himself on the 30th of August, which is really disappointing. Uh, and then there was Jeez. a... Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's very bad luck for him. But then uh, there's, a, yeah. there's a corporal, uh, Hubert Govett, who was from Geelong, um, but served uh, served with the British, uh, with the Royal Engineers. So he was living in England when the war broke out. He joined the Royal Engineers. He was sent to Gallipoli. Um, and he was killed, Pete, I can't believe it, on the 19th of December, 1915, the day <laughs> Suvla was evacuated. The day yeah, Suvla and Anzac were both evacuated, so he he is officially one of the last men killed in and in the Suvla sector, and he was an Australian. So yeah. check out, um, well, actually, Second Corporal, which is a rank I'm not familiar with, but Second Corporal Hubert Govett. So uh, he's yeah. buried up there as well at Hill Ten. Second Corporal, have you come across that before, Pete? Yeah, I have. It's a cavalry rank. It's a uh, ah. it's one of those ranks connected to uh, to mounted troops. I think. Yeah. Um, great. Thank you for that. Very interesting. Um, this is another good spot um, here. Um, you can follow some tracks down to the water's edge, and we're going to do that now for one really important reason because there's some there's some rocks, some rocky um, rocky outcrops, and uh, this was actually the, the site known as Suvla Base. This was the main base of operations. And again, if you look online, there's incredible maps showing how complicated this was. A little mini city. Mm on the water's yeah. edge because obviously there was a lot of liaison between the navy and the and the army to bring uh, bring, bring bring troops and supplies in and send wounded men off and i think even compared to anzac or north beach in the anzac sector this was a really sophisticated operation that was going on here lots of piers storehouses little warehouses a lot of almost a, a semi-permanent settlement was built here called suvla base but if you walk around a couple of the little outcrops a little a couple of little rocky bays and you climb up on a headland you look down and there's the wreck of a very large boat. You can just see the frame of the boat in the water. And it's actually the remains, incredibly, of a beetle landing craft. Probably the only example, Pete, anywhere around. I mean, it's it's a wreck. It's not in any good condition. Yeah. But this was the beetle landing craft was how lots of men came ashore at Suvla. It was the forerunner of the of landing craft that is still used today. Um, it had a big ramp in the front so it could drive up on the sand. The ramp would come down and the men would come off. So we saw a lot of them, obviously, D-Day 
during the Pacific landings of World War II. And even today, this is still the way that, that landing craft are used, run, off, run up on beaches and a ramp comes down in the front. I mean, it's pretty obvious to us today, um, but compared to men scrambling over the sides of lifeboats during the Anzac and Helles landings, this was um, quite a revolution, Pete. Did you in your time, Pete, ever um, have experience with these sorts of landing craft? Oh, yeah, yeah, we we trained with uh, with landing craft, so um, yeah, uh, I cer- uh, certainly did. It's still uh, the recognised way to get ashore nowadays. Tend to be mechanised, so still the vehicle, you know, the landing craft comes in, but you you tend to now be in a vehicle that that, that leaves rather than uh, in individually in in sections or or troops. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I never, I just like relics uh, i think we people will have got the gist who have listened to these podcasts before that poking about and looking at relics and things is 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 fascinating i just love that tactile nature and here we have something that uh, depending on on the tides that we can actually see very clearly um, the beetle landing craft but all around us is well worth having having a, a rummage as i like to say there's because this was a big storage area there's all sorts of bits of uh, the srd jars again and bottles and things it's just a an interesting place because so many people were crammed into this very small area we'll post some photos of the beetle landing craft because it is quite extraordinary to see one there. oh it is yeah it's it's yeah you know, there must be a preserved one somewhere, you would think, in the world, in a museum or something, but I certainly have never seen one. But here is a wreck, no. and it's a big one too. The wrecks at Gallipoli are normally – there's quite a few wrecks of landing craft and boats and things, but they tend to be just bits of metal. But this is a full – you can see the full – it's the yeah. full boat below the waterline. It's pretty, yeah. pretty impressive. Um, I've got a quote here just describing the beetle because it was quite a um, – it was, you know, the men were in awe when they saw how these things came down, especially the ones who'd seen the landings at Anzac and Helles and the disaster they were. So they were quite, um, they were quite amazed by this new technology. So here's a description: they were bulletproof, could carry 500 men each, and had long ramps at the bows. Okay, now I think there's a couple of inconsistencies here. I don't think they were bulletproof, and I certainly don't think they could carry 500 <laughs> men. But there we go. <laughs> they were bulletproof, could carry 500 men each, and had long ramps at the bows down which the troops could disembark in a matter of minutes when the boats grounded. This removed the nightmare of April 25th. This time there would be no pathetic gaggles of rowing boats tolling ashore under fire, but fast armoured landing craft capable of landing a division in a few hours. The arrival of the lighters at Mudros in July, at once called beetles by the sailors on account of long projecting arms of the landing ramps, which resembled antenna and their black paint, removed GHQ's greatest anxiety about a new landing. Well, it's a shame that yeah. the, it's a shame it removed their anxiety about a new landing because they should have been slightly more anxious than they were. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they would have made a better job of it. They were pretty large craft. I mean, I'm looking at a photo here now. They're, they're pretty big craft. I doubt you could get 500 men on them, but um, a lot of men. You could get a lot of people. I think there are, I think there are others, aren't there? That have sunk out at sea. I know just recently the uh, Turkish authorities have been doing a survey of all the uh, relevant um, uh, shipping that that's sunk in the area. Um, I think they're all been making sure that they're going to be preserved um, or as much as they can. Um, and I think there are other others out at sea that you can actually dive upon. I think. Yeah, diving at Gallipoli is a new, a new uh, popular pastime. It is. Yeah, I'd, yeah it is. I'll yeah. Absolutely, put that on my list next time I'm there because there are some. Impressive wrecks to see in pretty shallow water has was the nature yeah. of the entire campaign. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, you don't have to dive for this one though; you can see it just by standing on the shore, and it's 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 pretty yeah, amazing. Indeed. We'll definitely put it. We'll definitely put a photo up. Um, we're going to go past the the bay and past uh, Suvla Bay, so we're going to head up just to the point of land that sticks out, and this is the the the, the point of Suvla Bay, the the most I won't say the most northerly point, but certainly the most protruding point. And from here, if you go all the way to the end, you can look back. Um, 
definitely into the back of Anzac Cove and all the way up to Hellers, effectively. Um, you can see Archie Barber on a clear day and you can see the, the British landing beaches off in the distance. So you can imagine the view that Turkish observers um, had here. Uh, and so because it's such a prominent point, the Turks have erected a memorial uh, as they do at key points around the battlefields, which are always great to visit. Um, and the inscription yep. on this one reads, the enemy forces which landed at Araburnu, which is Anzac Cove, on the morning of 25 April 1915 and Anafada Harbour, which is Suvla Bay, on the night of 6-7 August 1917, realised after months of bloody fighting that they could not break through the Turkish defences on the Gallipoli Peninsula. They therefore abandoned these fronts on 20 December. So, yeah, triumphant from the Turks, but with good reason. They did absolutely all very factual. our butts. <laughs> yeah, all very factual. Very yeah. factual. That's, that's actually quite well done. I'm reading that now when they say they realised after months of bloody fighting that they would not be able to break through the Turkish defences. Is actually a fairly restrained way to um to to portray that for the Turkish position because they could well yeah. have said we you know drove the the invaders into the sea and all those sorts of things. So that's yeah. that's a good spot and it's a great view up the coast to see all the way up the coast to Cape Helles, which is thirty kilometres away. So pretty impressive. We're going to anything to add about Suvla Point, Pete? No, no, no. I've stood fine. there. I've stood what? there with you. I remember standing there beside you, looking out over the view. It's a good spot. Correct. I was just about to say that um, I have a, a great memory of uh, of that view. We had a great time at Suvla, didn't we? The first time we went there together oh. in 2013, I think it probably was. And a bunch Did of historians. We have, and we, I think uh, we had, had Peter time. Hart with us, didn't we? We had Peter Hart oh, with us, I think. <laughs> I think he was leading us, in fact. It's always, it's always a fun time <laughs> when uh, you're there with Peter Hart. So, no, we uh, had yeah, a great time. Yeah. We did. It's, it's oh, always it good fantastic. when historians get together and explore the yeah, ground. It was, Many differing yeah, it opinions. Was yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, we're going to head back now. We're going to visit one, probably my favourite cemetery, definitely at Suvla, and one of my favourites at Gallipoli. This is the highly isolated, very little visited Asmac Cemetery, which is named after the um, the valley that runs in front of it. It's another concentration cemetery built after the war, 1,074 graves, and as you'd expect, 684 of those are unknown. And so... This really marks the on the, the left of the line the furthest British advance. So we're almost in the foothills now of the ridges that surround Suvla. So this was the really desperate fighting when the British troops were just trying to get that high ground and the Turks were reinforcing and once again the Turks had the high ground. We were attacking uphill. Echoes of disasters on the on the Somme front, Pete, that, you know, we're fighting our way uphill yep. against a dug in enemy. Again, yep. just to stuff up, just to stuff up. And um yeah. this is the this is the most northerly Commonwealth Cemetery at Gallipoli and absolutely by far the least visited. And just to give an yeah. example of that, I was reading an account from a historian who went here. This was in 1970, visited the cemetery, got chatting to the gardener and the gardener said, you're the first visitor I've seen in three years to this cemetery. <laughs> um, things have improved a little bit since then, but not by much. Um, so when I was doing the notes for this book in 2008, uh, my Gallipoli guidebook, I went there again with Kanan Celik, the great Turkish guide, um, and that was only the second time he'd been there all year. This was in this was late. This was in November, uh, twenty yeah. two thousand and eight. This was the second time he'd been to this cemetery in the whole year. And he is on the peninsula every day. He would do multiple visits to Lone Pine and the Hellas Memorial in a day, often. So uh, the fact that he'd only been here twice in a year is is really quite extraordinary. So so when you go to to Suvla, dear listener, please make sure you make the effort. It is quite an effort to get up this far, but go to Asmac Cemetery. Um, did we go there, Pete? I can't remember. You must have gone there. No, I don't think. I don't think I've been. Uh, I was thinking about it, and I've got a feeling that we were running out of time. Um, 
Not sure, to be absolutely yeah, No, I think you're right. I yeah. think we did Hill 60 yeah. and then a few of the, the northern cemeteries and went down yeah. to Bay Beach, but I don't think we got this yeah. far for this very reason. It's, it's a long way away. But, yeah. gee, part of the reason you've got to go, especially if you're British, Pete, is one of the great mysteries of the Gallipoli campaign. Now, this is an extraordinary story. The Sandringham Company of the 1st, 5th Norfolks. Now, Sandringham, as in the royal estate, still a royal estate, these were people who worked with the king on the royal estate. So you want to talk about the ultimate uh-huh. pals battalion or the ultimate pals company. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, is there anything you want to say about the Sandringhams before we get started with their story? Uh, yes, it's it's really a non-story that became a story. <laughs> so uh, uh, even at the time, they really knew what had happened to them. But but it was, it's this newspapers. It's very typically newspapers of the time. Um, started really developing a, a kind of a mystery story about what had happened to the Sandringham Battalion. Um, and all sorts of various theories were, were kind of, uh, spoken about. And then those theories were exaggerated. And before we know it, they're walking into the mist and disappearing. And then they're going to be, bodies will be found and they've been executed by the Turks and they were all captured. And, and in fact, it's no different than any battalion that gets itself isolated, cut off, some getting back, some not, some being taken prisoner, an awful lot a, a lot killed. Now, I have to say the Turks were not always that keen on taking prisoners, but there's no, there's certainly, there were stories of uh, of um, when they were clearing the, the areas that they found lots of men who had been shot in the back of the, the head. Not true. It's a, it's a made up story. Even the stories of the mass graves supposedly found created by the Turks, not really true. Um, it, it's in the clearances they found a lot of the bodies in gullies where they'd actually been thrown by the farmers as they cleared the land and wanted to get back on, on their land. And once we'd left and they, they uh, were not overly uh, ca- uh, careful with bodies and just threw them into gullies. So there's all sorts of uh, of stories, most of which now have been dis, uh, discounted. So I'm just going to read a couple of uh, of accounts uh, from newspapers at the, at the time, and then one from uh, Charles Pierpoint Edwards, who was actually the chaplain involved in the recovery of the bodies in uh, 1918-19. Uh, so I'll start with the Lynn News. This is the a local newspaper. Uh, only those in the firing line who were able to continue the advance when the other regiments in the brigade had come to a standstill. Most were taken prisoner, and it seemed to me that the great mystery about the whole thing is that so many of us got back at all. And that's Lance Corporal 2414 Ray Towler. He's one of those that managed to uh, regain his lines and was not taken prisoner and not killed. And he's just commenting on the fact that it's amazing anybody got back. Um, the battalion chaplain, as I, as I mentioned, Reverend Charles Pierpoint Edwards. We have found the 5th Norfolks. There were 180 in all, 122 Norfolk and a few Hants and Suffolks with the 2nd uh, of the 4th Cheshires. We could only identify two, Private Barnaby and Carter. They were scattered over an area about one square mile at a distance of at least 800 yards behind the Turkish front line. Many of them had evidently been killed in a farm, as a local Turk who owns the place told us that when he came back, he found the farm covered with decomposing bodies of British soldiers, which he threw into a small ravine. The whole thing quite bears out the original theory that they did not go very far on, but got mopped up one by one, all except the ones who got into the farm. 
Um, just a matter of interest, the two mentioned uh, in his report, Corporal 2624 John Augustus Barnaby, had enlisted in East Derringham, uh, and he was 24 and Private 1028 uh, Walter Carter was born in Retton and was 22. Uh, both are now laid to rest in uh, Asmac Cemetery where we're standing. Um, and so those are, are two that were actually identified. Uh, and even on the Gallipoli Association website, this is a few years ago now, uh, many wounded, disorientated and exhausted men will return back to the British lines over the next few days. Surviving the war as prisoners were at least two officers and 31 other ranks from the brigade's attack, also adding to the surviving numbers. The final casualty figures of the 1st of the 5th Norfolks were adjusted to 15 officers and 141 men killed on the 12th of August, which is actually an appalling casualty rate, um, of which only Captain Beck... And 16, now this is interesting, only Captain Beck and 16 men were recruited from the Sandringham estate. Uh, this is the fact and not the myth. So uh, there's a lot of debunking of, 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 the, of the myth, which to a certain extent spoils the story a bit. Yeah, that's but disappointing. I think imp- um, <laughs> it is, it is. But I think it's important that we do kind of uh, t- tell uh, the, the real story. And, and it's a story that will be repeated on the Western Front over and over again. And it, and it matches a little bit uh, the story of the Australian battalion, and I can't remember which one, fighting at um, uh, Celtic Wood. Uh, which is part of the battlefield uh, near Broodsint. It's the 10th um, Battalion. Is it 10th? Yeah. yeah. And they have a similar story, don't they, Matt? Got overran, uh, uh, they went ahead of everybody else, got isolated and eventually wiped out and cut off and wiped out. Yeah, well, um, you know, these stories sell papers and especially their association with the king yep. that, that men yep. from the company, you know, they're called the Sandringham Company, you know, the yeah. association with the king. Um, yeah, there was an air of mystery about the whole thing, but I think you're right. The, the men advanced forward. They advanced ahead of their comrades on either side of them, got behind the Turkish lines and were surrounded, cut off, and many were killed or wounded. Um, yeah, fascinating story. Regardless of mystery or not, it's a, it's yeah. a very interesting story. And this is a, and you know, we, we, you're actually looking out on the ground where the Sandringham's advanced. Uh, when you're at Asbury yes. Cemetery. And some of them are buried yeah. there in the cemetery. So it's an interesting spot. Yep, they are. And yeah, undoubtedly... All of them are buried in the cemetery. They're at, there's, there's nowhere else for them to be. So all the Sandringhams yeah. are in the cemetery. We just don't know yeah. which grave belongs to which. which man. Yeah, exactly. So an interesting story. Um, just another thing I wanted to say about this cemetery is because it's so little visited, the times I've been there, the headstones were very faded, really faded, You know, almost beyond being able to be read. And I know that Commonwealth yeah. War Graves are in the process of upgrading uh, headstones around the world, not just in Gallipoli. Uh, but I don't know if it's been done here yet at ASMAC. So actually, if you're listening and have been to ASMAC Cemetery recently, uh, drop us a line on social media and tell us uh, how the headstones are looking because I have not been there for several years and the headstones were desperately in need of renovation. So hopefully that's been done uh, by now. Yeah, mm. Good spot. Yeah. You should all, uh, ASMAC is a place I really like going to. Yeah. Okay, we're um, going to leave the cemetery now. We're going to... Sorry, did you have something to add there, Pete? No, no, I was just going to say, and I look forward to going. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a place that I, I'd, I'd really like to get to. We're going to uh, leave the cemetery and now talk about isolated. We are really getting into the uh, into the weeds now because we are going to drive up into the hills. And now this is an area that uh, the British effectively never really took. There was, there was some scrappy isolated fighting up here, um, but this was really an area that was occupied by the Turks. We're going to drive up a... A very, very, very rough track for a long way, six kilometres or so, 
and eventually we're going long after we think that we must have missed it and we must have missed a turn, <laughs> which is always the case in Gallipoli. You think, I must, yeah. three kilometres ago, I must have missed the turn off or something. But eventually you will come to the memorial we're looking for. And this is the Turkish Jandama Memorial. Um, extremely isolated, but certainly well worth visiting. And Peter Hart, occasionally on his walking tours, brings people up here to an area nearby known as the Boot. And it is consider he you know they he always talks about it as the uh, the most ridiculous walk you can do at Gallipoli to get up here. I I have never done the walk, thank God, with Peter Hart, but I have certainly driven up here, and it's um it is very isolated and very rough country. It's very rocky these these hills, um very sharp isolated ridges, and this there's a Turkish memorial up here, the Jandama Memorial, uh, Jandama as in the military police, uh, the equivalent of the gendarme that we talk about in France. Yeah, uh, the Jandama Memorial. Uh, so this is a group of um of Gendarme military police who uh, stopped a British attack in the early days up here and, and, and they're buried in a cemetery here. There's also quite a striking memorial made out of painted artillery shells that are up here. So it's a, it's a really good spot to come and pay our respects to the Turks, but it also offers some incredible views um, that you don't normally get at Gallipoli, which is out in the other direction, which is up towards Greece. So you look all the way up to the Greek coast up here. So it's absolutely extraordinary and a beautiful view of the Aegean. Um, and quite an isolated spot. And uh, just to give you an indication, another one of our quotes, this was a British soldier who fought not quite in this spot, but very nearby. Um, it was it was two areas called Kidney Hill and the Pimple, which were up here on, on these ridges. And here was his uh, description. He was actually a stretcher bearer. And here's what he saw. That hillside was a shambles. Evidently, there had been fierce hand-to-hand fighting there a few hours ago. Rifles, kits, water bottles, car key, Turkish tunics and headgear were strewn everywhere among the scrub. While we were following a phantom-like voice, we came suddenly onto a half-dug trench, which an RAMC officer had made into a combined mortuary and first aid station. There we set furiously to work, sorting out the dead from the living. There reeled among us, out of the darkness, an officer raving, My men have taken that bloody hill, but they're dying of thirst. He passed on, and we continued our ghastly work. It just it, it gives a great illustration that quote Pete of disorganisation. You know he used the word shambles. Just what what Pete, you're a military man. What does it mean to military men to be in that situation? No one knows what's going on. The officers are going half mad. There's yep. dead and wounded everywhere. There's aid stations being set up to try and deal with the influx of bleeding men. How how do you fight in that environment? Well, it's very difficult, and I think that's why you need well-trained men. And of course, this is something that a lot of these guys are, are not fully trained. Certainly, the uh, the Kitchener men have, have have had very rudimentary training, and this is where discipline training comes into play. Uh, one of the things we haven't mentioned, of course, is this is the height of summer, and we know what it's like uh, for those that have been you know, be, been on the peninsula in the height of summer. is is not the best time to go because it is just so hot. And the supply of water to these guys was very difficult. And in that account that um, uh, you just read, Matt, that, that's the first time we've heard somebody desperately looking for water. Um, because, of course, the, the men, certainly after combat and during combat, you drink uh, enormous amounts of water. It's one of the comments my son, who uh, fought um, in Afghanistan, and during his first combat, he uh, remembered that by midday he'd drunk all of his water. He'd actually uh, emptied his camelback without even realising he was drinking it. Um, and of course, nowadays you have a, saw, a straw that you, you suck goes into your camel back and the water's carried on your back. Um, and so he hadn't even noticed he'd been drinking it. But you could, because you're uh, in combat, your mouth is dry all the time. It's just something you automatically do. And so these guys, uh, obviously, the majority would have drunk their water again by midday. But whereas uh, 
um, um, uh, my son was was resupplied during the, that evening. These guys will probably have to wait till they actually leave the line, so they're relieved and go back uh, so before they can actually get a get a re- a resupply of water. So very very important that you have uh, discipline in uh, in the uh, the way that you drink water and use water. And these guys are just not that the, that that's well trained. So, so I think yeah, I think a combination of that uh, ammunition, of course, another issue, um, and those will be what will bring despair and panic is lack of water, lack of ammunition, and lack of knowledge of what's going on. So, all of those things important to infantrymen who, especially, have been isolated. Yeah, great points. Thanks for that, Pete. I mean, I think the word shambles sums that up pretty clearly. Yeah. So we're going to head drive all the way back down past Asmac. We're actually going to head all the way back towards Green Hill Cemetery, and we're going to before we get there, we're going to take a left, and we're going to head really right up the middle of the Suvla sector to a site of courage, sacrifice, ghastliness. It's not much to look at today. It's a hill with three Turkish memorials on top of it, but this is the famous Scimitar Hill. This was the last organised Allied attack at Gallipoli, the 21st of August, 1915, and actually the largest. More troops were employed in the attack on Scimitar Hill. The combined attack on Scimitar Hill and Hill 60, which we talked about in our last podcast, both took place on the 21st of August, 1915. Disastrous, ghastly. Even Winston Churchill referred to these as the the biggest and the last attack at Gallipoli. Um, What can we say about Scimitar Hill, Pete? The, the, The British had occupied it on the 8th of the 8th of August during the landing. They gave it up to the Turks freely to bring troops back to the beach. Then they had to attack it again on the 21st. Just a disaster. The the, the scrub caught fire. Wounded men were burnt to death in the scrub. It was just an awful thing. And we did not capture Scimitar Hill. It's just a ghastly, ghastly attack. It's it's one that I've known about for a long, long time. When I first joined the Royal Marines, uh, our training uh, uh, bases are uh, tend to be in Dorset um, and Devon. Uh, and uh, I uh, became very interested in the uh, Dorset Yeomanry, and uh, they fought there with the Second Mounted Division, um, uh, which is the South Midlands Mounted uh, Brigade, and this is where they have the... It doesn't sound like a great number compared to what we've been looking at, 45 men killed, but of course these are are guys that are normally riding horses, and of course here they've been dismounted for the, the fighting here, like everybody else, hadn't really got a great idea of what was going on, uh, lack of water. Uh, and for them, it's when we talk about the Dorset Yeomanry and their experiences in the Great War, this is the one that we always go to, the fighting uh, on the tw- on the 21st, and the attack uh, on Scimitar Hill. Um, yeah, so it's something that I've always been interested in. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it fills me with both admiration for those that fought there and the horror of the organisation planning and the, the lack of water, I think, is the worst aspect of the fighting during this day, it is, is men that survived it were in terrible states due to lack of water. One time I went up to Scimitar Hill um, on a visit to Gallipoli and there'd been a fire that had come through, a grass fire had come through fairly recently, and the trenches that were exposed, Turkish yeah. positions, it was incredible. And the... the relics left over from the fighting and it's it's all just there below the scrub um and so that was absolutely extraordinary for probably six months or so everyone was talking about get to scimitar hill and explore the trench system fortunately we now have the opportunity to do that in a bit more organized fashion because the turkish authorities are clearing sections of trench which Mm. i think is fantastic and check out our video on youtube that peter hart and i made which was exploring the trenches of gallipoli 
which was on Silt Spur uh, next to Lone Pine in the Anzac sector. So I think it's brilliant. The Turks are clearing scrub away from sectors of trenches to expose the trenches, but they're leaving the roots of the trees in place to hold the soil in, in place. And then it'll be exposed for a year or two, and then eventually nature will reclaim it, and they go and clear another sector. I think it's fantastic. And I didn't realise how much of the Gallipoli trench systems remained beneath the scrub until you see things like Scimitar Hill after a fire or the, the, the newly cleared areas at Siltspur. Just extraordinary. There's um, yeah, it's not a lot of glory at Scimitar Hill. There's not a lot to say about the fighting there, really the, the final bleak chapter of the whole campaign. I think one of the things I've always, again, it's one of those stories that goes back right the way to my childhood. And I think it was probably in the Victor or one of those comics that I used to take as a young lad. Uh, and it was uh, of um, one of the yeomanry troopers, Trooper Frederick Potts, uh, uh, doing an act that uh, he was he will be awarded the Victoria Cross for. And that's uh, even though he'd been shot in the thigh himself. So he can't carry anybody, but he, he devises, I think, a cunning device of putting a wounded soldier on a shovel and then dragging the the shovel using it as a sled and i remember reading this in a comic as a as a young man and thinking god that's clever you know not one of these kind of grab a bayonet and a rifle and charge the enemy single-handedly this is about about rick getting people off the battlefield and i just thought it was a clever use of a shovel um uh, and uh, one which uh, uh, saved uh, a man's life well there are only two victoria crosses awarded during the campaign at suvla uh, and both were at this spot at Scimitar Hill. So that one, Frederick Potts on the 21st of August during this yeah. attack we described. Uh, but on the attack on the 9th of August, when the British first occupied the hill, um, Captain Percy Hanlon um, rescued, uh, sorry, Hanson uh, rescued six wounded men under very heavy fire and was awarded the Victoria Cross. Again, Pete, we discussed this uh, in our Posier episode with Claude Castleton's VC, but it, it 1915 really marked that shift, didn't it, in... Yeah, in the in the reasons that the Victoria Cross was given, because even when we were talking about Brigadier General Kenner buried in Lalababa Cemetery, yeah, his VC that he'd won in the Sudan was also for rescuing wounded. wounded. Uh, we see two mm. VCs here for rescuing wounded. We saw Claude Castleton yeah. in 1916 yeah. for rescuing wounded, but from 1916 onwards. Um, and I did Change, look that up yeah. after the Posier episode, Pete, and it was just after Claude Castleton in July 1916. Oh, right. Just after yeah. that, they made a new rule. Okay, too many VCs are being given for rescuing wounded. No more for rescuing wounded. You have to get a VC now for for uh, for a, an act of gallantry in, in furthering your unit's objectives. Um, but again, here what we're seeing is VCs being awarded for what I think is incredible bravery, rescuing wounded. Yep. Yep. It's quite a great and spot. innovation. Innovation. That's <laughs> what I like here. Remember that. Yeah. If, you're ever, if you're ever somewhere and you need a sl- an improvised sled, grab the new shovel. Follow the yeah. example of uh, Fred Potts. Um, we're nearing the end, Pete. I mean, Cinematar is a very sad place. Uh, again, I can't help but thinking of those wounded men burnt to death yeah. in, the, in the fires. Awful, yeah. awful stuff. And it's it feels like that when you're there. It's not a very glorious spot. The yeah. Turkish memorials record the, 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 the landing, the, cap- the fighting there on the 9th of August and the fighting on the 21st, the last chapter of the yeah. Gallipoli campaign. We're going to head a little bit yeah. further north. Uh, there's a, a village um, called, uh, called Anafata, Burak Anafata. And we're going to head up there. Um, interestingly, because just on the outskirts of the town, as we drive through the town and then uh, come out the other side, there are two extremely large Turkish guns still on their mounts, loosely in the position. So the guns are where they were after the campaign, but the the gun emplacements have sort of been rebuilt around them to give an indication of what they were what they were like. But it's fascinating they're still here, Pete, because these are the guns that are described by the Anzacs as Anafata Annie. They called the the shells that came. You know, they they. The battery was called Anafata Annie, and the one at the south uh, was um, was Beachy Bill, 
and the ones in the north were Anafada Annie, and um, the guns are still there. It's extraordinary. So they're, they're pointing at Suvla now because they originally started firing at the Anzacs on the first day of the campaign, and then they swung them north to fire on the beaches of Suvla. But um, just great to see these huge, they're absolutely massive artillery guns in place. And um, here's someone who uh, who was uh, at, uh, at Anzac and described hearing the shells come in from Anafada Annie. The first thing one hears is a noise like the rending of linen or perhaps the rush of steam describes it better. This gets louder and louder and then as the projectile nears the end of its journey, one hears a whine, half whistle, half scream and then the explosion. If it is very near, there is an acrid smell in the air. One's feelings are difficult to describe. You duck your head instinctively, you feel absolutely helpless wondering where the thing will burst and as you hear the explosion, a quick wave of feeling sweeps over you as you murmur, thank heaven, not this time. And doesn't that sum up the feeling of men under shell fire? It does, it does oh, indeed. Just yeah. random and horrific. So uh, that's the guns yeah. of Anafada Annie, and they're still there. You can go and visit them today and scramble all over them and take your photo. It's one of the great uh, aspects of, of the whole of Peninsula, the number of guns that are still there. And I think, obviously, the only reason they're there is because getting them out and scrapping them will be so difficult that it was it was, it was was not worth the effort. So they're, they're still there. So it's one of the, the great things. There are an awful lot of the batteries uh, from uh, from the fighting uh, on the Peninsula still in place. Especially these big old guns. I think because it was early yeah. during the First World War, relatively early during the First World War, there was a lot of you know, scraping together of yeah. whatever equipment they could find on both sides. And so, yeah. you know, obsolete naval guns and, you know, all sorts of things. So by the time yeah. the campaign was over and, the, you know, the Turks were obviously the occupiers, um, there was no need for an old, you know, 1902 naval gun to be pressed into service. So they just left them where they were. Um, the French yeah. guns uh, down at Helles are also well worth seeing for that same reason, the famous French battery, um, the guns that, were, that the Allies destroyed when they left. Um, Pete, that's pretty much the end of the Suvla tour. We can drive back down now to the coast and take a left and we'll be heading back towards Anzac. We've come a long way. It's, it's a long drive back to Anzac. And then once you're at Anzac, we still know it's a long drive back to a cold beer waiting for you in a Charbot or Chinookalee. So it's it's a long way north up here, but really well worth doing. It's it's the, the I won't say the untold story of the Gallipoli campaign, but certainly the misunderstood story of the Gallipoli yeah. campaign. And you gain a, yep. an incredible perspective by walking this ground that we've just done. It's it's a great spot, isn't it, Pete? It is, and it goes right the way back to my uh, my interest in it. Goes right the way back to my early uh, collecting years. So I, uh, probably around about six or seven years old, collecting comical cards of the of the Great War. Um, one of my favourites at that time was a picture of a soldier, and emblazoned above him as "We are the boys of Suvla Bay." Um, and, um, and I remember, th- uh, it fired my imagination at the time and, and I suppose it, it still does, uh, really. Yeah. And there was a lot of confusion as well. You read newspaper articles describing the Anzac landing and I think Suvla was the only identifiable landmark on the peninsula in the early days yeah. of the campaign. So there was a lot of misunderstanding that the Anzac troops had come ashore at Suvla and obviously reinforced by Eric Bogle's wonderful song, the band played while singing Matilda. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But there, ha- there was a lot of misunderstanding. You read that in early newspapers as well. It's a, just a fascinating story, and it's a fascinating place to yeah. visit. So please, when you go to Gallipoli, walk the ground and discover the, the, the ghosts of Suvla. It's a, it's a wonderful journey. Yeah, Pete, like always, thank you so much for your input. It's been great walking this ground with you. No, very enjoyable, Matt. Hey! 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.